episode six of the Therapy Ideas podcast, a series of conversations with speech and language therapists from around the world. I'm Rhiannon Walton, and I'm talking to Fiona Douglas about working with children with severe speech disorders, how they prioritise in Western Australia, and the best bits from British and Australian services. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to be speaking to Fiona Douglas in Perth, Australia today. So welcome, Fiona. Oh, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. We've had some lovely weather today, so I won't complain. Great stuff. Brilliant. Well, um, we used to work together while you were over here in London, and now you're obviously back over there in Perth. Um, I know that when you were over here, you were our go-to therapist for support <laughs> with severe speech and dyspraxic kiddies. Um, what what approaches are you using with those types of children over there in Australia? Okay, well, I must admit, I'm not a guru by any means, <laughs> but um, I think it's just an area that has always, um, because there's so much problem solving behind it, um, has always been quite an interest for me. Um, I would say I'm pretty much the approach I'm taking is quite similar to what I used to do in the UK. Um, I've got quite a few children with um, CAS, the childhood apraxia of speech, as we prefer to call it in Australia, or otherwise the developmental verbal dyspraxia. Um, A few children on my caseload. So um, I think with all of the children, it's always finding out... um, through quite thorough assessment um, and allowing that time to get to know the children and the families and um, just finding out, I suppose, um, yeah, you also with their personalities, what's going to be the best approach for each child. So um, I think when I was in the UK, one of the best things that I got to do was to attend the Nuffield Dyspraxia Program training. Okay. And yeah, I found it so valuable because um, I think we, I mean, we do have that same program in our clinics here in Perth and I'm always getting into the files and using those resources. But I think a lot of people thought that it was a program to be completed from um, front cover to back cover and that, um, yeah, that it's very scripted where in fact when I did the training they were not promoting that at all. Instead they were saying um, you've got to really problem solve for each child and you may have um, multiple targets at all different levels. So um, I'm still using that sort of approach with the children here and using a variety of resources and um, whatever I can get my hands on. So doing like minimal pairs approaches and core vocabulary for some children. And then those little ones who um, need a little bit more encouragement, I suppose, to be involved in the therapy process, Um, I think, for some of them, sometimes just working on consistency of a sound that might already be in their sound system, um, things like that. So, uh, yeah, I would say I'm just taking very much that variable approach as I used to. Yeah, that problem-solving approach. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely sometimes they stretch my mind and um, sometimes the progress can be so 
um, very gradual. But um, yeah, lately a lot of my kids have been making really great progress, and I think um, yeah, as it's nice when you are able to work with those children who are starting to have that real interest in sounds and the phonological awareness because often I see such rapid progress then once they are motivated to make the, the changes to their system rather than just me being the bully and trying to make them do all the hard work and repetition and practice. So, And also, I, I mean, it's always been for these kids about making sure that that practice is consolidated um, and regularly completed at home or at school or wherever. So... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really interesting that you talked about um, w- when they're keen to to change their sound system, and also um, what you can do with those really little ones, like making them more mm. consistent with sounds they already have in their sound system. Um, do you have some? Do you use guidelines around what's a good age to work with them? Do you have a bit more flexibility around that? How does it work? Um, yeah, I mean. I think, uh, like, the where I work and, um, I guess, yeah, my guidelines that um, I work amongst here in Perth would be specifying that they can have so much therapy therapy provision um, in a given year and, um, yeah, the frequency of that, which is exactly the same, I think, in the UK. Um, in terms of the real little ones, I do really like to focus on the language because I just think that um, it's so cool that they, once they are getting these sounds, that they've got something to attach it to yeah. and, and to be functioning on. So um, I do really work on language and all those um, like early language stimulation techniques with parents for those younger ones. And I think um, I've been quite surprised. Personally, I used to think that maybe around four years was when they were going to be really responsive to all the um, intervention for working on the sound system. But I've actually seen really amazing progress in three-year-olds as well. And um, I think it's, yeah, it's so individualised and it does rely on strong comprehension skills, of course, and, and that awareness and interest Um, from the child but yeah I think in the particularly in the early stages with the young ones like the two and three year olds it has to have that real focus on the expressive language as well and um, yeah just I guess strengthening that and making them stronger communicators. Yeah absolutely and that sort of brings me on to to asking you about prioritization Um, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. sure you remember how it worked over here in, in London, we we yeah. focused a lot on children with dyspraxia and they got a really quite good and quite consistent service. So we tried to see them mm-hmm. fortnightly, sometimes even more. Um, but of yeah. course, that was at the expense of lots of other kiddies who then sort of went yeah. without therapy. Um, how does, does prioritisation work over there? 
Okay. Well, I mean, I can only really speak for um, our service, which is the, the government's health department. Um, and here things operate a little bit differently to the eastern states, okay. um, whereby we have two separate departments, the health department and the education department. Right. Um, and so, unfortunately, I think it comes down to funding and also the fact that we don't have that many speech pathologists or speech and language therapists in Perth, um, we don't have a school age system. So um, any child who has um, yeah, speech and language needs and is school aged, um, they are either going to be accessing private services, um, which there are now programs to subsidise the cost of um, so many sessions for that. Okay. Um, or alternatively, it is going through the health department. Um, unless you've got, we do have a few schools which are like the specialist speech and language schools and nurseries um, over in London. Yep. So we do have a few of those based in the metropolitan area. But yeah, generally, I suppose the focus is on the early intervention. Um, and what, what I think is has worked really well over here is that um, with our child development service each of the different catchment areas across the metropolitan area um, all have the same service levels and prioritization so you've not got that case of that postcode lottery and, okay, yeah. and that it can be that variability so um, these were basically a set of guidelines were devised by the managers and seniors um, and they specify that there's five levels um, so basically your top level are the children with the fluency difficulties or the suspected um, dyspraxia or apraxia of speech yeah. um, and then you work your way down and it's all based on um, the age of the child the severity and then the type of difficulty so I think um, yeah it's quite it's quite a valuable system because it's consistent and yeah. Um, it's yeah it's justified by all the evidence base brilliant yeah and um does that mean that that everybody gets some therapy or are you do you have to discharge people who are don't meet those criteria yeah i mean basically what happens is once you allocate a child to a level like they are is um, quite possible that they're going to shift to different levels as they make progress or as they get older and uh, entering school. Um, so each service level will specify um, the frequency of intervention. So it doesn't um, specify what you're providing. Um, so I think that's nice that each um, clinician can still have their own um, ability and flexibility to offer things that suit their own style um, and suit the like the client and the family yeah. um, but say for example a child who um, has fluency difficulties well then um, we do follow the Lidcombe approach 
in Perth and so we will follow that procedure and so that indicates how much therapy they're getting Um, and quite similarly um, with our CAS kids here or the um, development of verbal dyspraxia um, we would provide pretty much fortnightly therapy or um, the equivalent of uh 20 sessions across a year so um each clinician is quite different in how they might provide that it might be for example um two blocks of 10 or four blocks of five sessions or um you might do a like a childcare centre visit as one of those sessions. So, yeah, there is quite a bit of flexibility and um, autonomy for clinicians yeah. how they want to do it. And then, yeah, as you go down the severity level or the service level, sorry, um, then you're starting to look at, um, I guess, reduced number of therapy sessions or blocks um, and to level four and level five where you'll be providing um I guess quarterly reviews or or therapy so um yeah it's all dependent on um age and severity and the type of need yeah how how well do you feel that system works Fiona yeah I think it's um I think it's like I'm responding quite well to it because <laughs> I know then um you can explain to the parent um and, and know that if they know other families who are accessing services that there's this consistency and, and that there is um, strong foundation for why this is the provision that they can access. And I don't think there's ever been any concern there and knowing that it's consistent across the whole metropolitan area, yeah. um, then you don't ever seem to have those issues. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you still have that ability to make the decision as to, okay, how would the child best respond? Um, shall I give, yeah, a, a longer block or a shorter block? Um, I might even give um, one appointment every month if it was building on expressive language or receptive language. So um, I think, yeah, because there still is that flexibility yeah. um, for each clinician, I, I quite like it. Great stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. And in terms of working as part of a wider multidisciplinary team, do your sort of levels of service map on to some child development levels of service? Is there any consistency or how does that MDT stuff work? Yeah, I think um, unfortunately that there isn't really consistency with that approach purely because um, I think it's so dependent on what site you're working at. Okay. Um, so, for example, one of the sites where I'm based, I'm actually um, not able to liaise like in person with other um, disciplines. But then another site where I'm based, there's an occupational therapist based also at that site um, a few days a week. So we have quite a few clients in common and we'll just communicate about those clients. And we've actually had a few joint treatment sessions. So um, I think it is really dependent. And one of our issues, I suppose, over here is that not every catchment area has um, 
a site or a, a large enough space where you can do that um, multidisciplinary approach and, and treatment because you of needing often a larger working space yeah. that you can share and, and not having the transport issues. So um, the time involved in transport. So um, I think we do have um, a good system and we do work very well collaboratively um, and there's lots of liaison. I'm often communicating with the social workers and physiotherapists and occupational therapists and um, we're very lucky to have a good computer database system <laughs> over here where, oh gosh, that used to be the bane of my <laughs> But um, I must admit, I much prefer the system here. And so you can see all the progress notes from all the other disciplines. Um, so, and yeah, I think through email and phone calls and, and shared notes, there is quite a bit of um, that interdisciplinary working. But in terms of actually providing joint services, I know that some catchment areas um, will be better at it. And often it comes down, unfortunately, to the fact that they have a working space that can be used for that purpose. So, yeah, yeah I think it's quite variable, unfortunately. Yeah, and sounds like it's similar to here, dependent on quite practical issues such as yeah. rooms and timetables. Yeah, timetables, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, just trying to arrange it. I think everyone um, definitely has that like valuing other professionals and all their expertise and I think there is quite a um, strong communication between them but um, yeah in terms of the practical day-to-day -day stuff that I think those issues are going to always be there for us. Yeah absolutely. Um, okay well over here we, we're talking a lot about reporting back to the commissioners and we're hearing a lot of oh, commissioners want to know about evidence-based practice and outcomes. Um, I know yeah. that when you were over here, you worked on some audits. Um, how, how does evidence-based practice and, and research projects and things fit into what you do over in Perth? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, when I was working on the audits, that was when I was working in those specialist speech and language nurseries, which yeah. um, are quite a, a valuable but also costly um, provision, no doubt. Um, so it was very important for us to be able to get that data together. I know that um, the education department where we have our um, specialist speech and language schools, they also would be collecting that sort of information um, to feed back to the education department and, and so on. Um, in terms of our day-to-day -day practices, uh, we also have um, speech pathology interest groups, although they tend to be um, on a broad range of topics rather than being more specialist. Okay. Um, so I think those are opportunities for us to get more up to date with the um, latest research and best, um, best practice. Um, and then I guess, yeah, just sharing that information and the constant communication between the different disciplines. But in terms of um, getting evidence to set, to provide back to the health departments that um, that tends to happen probably more at the higher level, at the management level, where okay. they're collecting data about waiting lists and um, when we trial some new programs. So, for example, um, 
we started this year trialling another parent training group that looked at a lot of the early language stimulation techniques. Um, So getting the information from parents through their questionnaires and feedback. And um, we also do a lot of questions. I think there's an annual questionnaire um, to be completed by parents and carers to get information about a range of things. So looking at um, how long they waited for the service and um, how accessible it is and then the quality of service provision and the relationship with the clinicians. So all of that information is collected, but I would be analysed at a higher level up. Yeah. And um, how how do they use that data, do you think? Does it cascade down again in and support you to change your practice or do you feel like it it how how do they use it yeah i mean if it was something for example i suppose that the parent carer questionnaire is across the catchment areas so they're used on those big planning days where that information comes back to us and for things that we think okay yes we can make the changes they'll be discussed on those days um I mean, a lot of the time, unfortunately, it comes down to things such as concerns about the waiting list or concerns about the location of site. And so that is out of our control. Um, So, yeah, but I think, uh, for example, if you're looking at the feedback from a group that we've been running, obviously, we will then always be making adjustments and and amending it where possible so that, you know, you're suiting um, the clients and the families. So... Um, yeah, I suppose that information, if it's about something that we're delivering, it like in a new thing we're trialling, um, we're looking at doing some like baby groups next year. And so obviously we want feedback from that and knowing whether it's a valuable um, addition to our service provision or whether um, people prefer more individualised um, yeah, communication with their managing clinicians so um, all of that I guess shapes us and guides us a little bit but more at a team level I suppose. Yeah absolutely Um, and finally just on that theme how how um, strong is the link between the practicing clinicians and the and the researchers in the universities over there it's just come to I've been talking about it with some people about how there's lots of research going on in universities over here in London but that link between what they're doing and what we're doing on the ground sometimes seems a bit <laughs> missing, I guess. Um, so do you, ha- how does it work over there? Are you able to, um, you know, to liaise with those people? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a few different ways we can access it. But um, so, for example, when we have those speech pathology interest groups, because they're not specialised in certain areas, um, those those people who are completing the research at the universities will be invited to attend every now and again okay. um, and to give feedback on the work that they've been doing. Um, I think it's actually quite interesting sometimes also just having the speech pathology students um, attending and, and on practical placements, yeah. that can often be a nice way to get touch base with them and find out what else is happening and what are the latest approaches and um, and ideas and so on because they are so heavily driven, I suppose, by all the 
um, latest information and they have access to all the journals and everything online. Yeah. Um, I suppose the other way is attending, um, like we do have the Speech Pathology Australia Conference annually and that would be a great time to find out about what is the latest evidence base for different areas because, again, that will be very broad and general, um, looking at things from, yes, stuttering to, uh, I guess, adult communication to, yeah, and you can actually select which sessions you're attending and um, which keynote speakers you'd like to listen to. So that would probably be the way to access that, to best access that information, I suppose. Yeah. But it's always going to be a bit of a challenge with time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, brilliant. Well, I just want to finish up by asking you if there's something um, that you brought back to Australia from London that you thought was really, was worth kind of continuing from the NHS and if you can share with us something that you guys do over there in Australia that we might benefit from over here in, in the NHS. Okay, brilliant. Well, I had a little think about this one. <laughs> Basically, I think the thing, I mean, when I came over from Perth, um, I tried, well, I worked in a few different areas, so um, across the UK, and yeah. I think that was um, an amazing experience because I got to see all different systems um, with the NHS and um, work in a range of different teams, whether it was early years or school-based services and um, working from health centres and working in a hospital and, and so on. So um, that was one of the things that I gained the most from. Okay. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I suppose the thing that I probably most enjoyed was the fact that um, in the UK there are all the like bandings and levels that you can work your way through and progress and um, whereas in Australia or in Western Australia there aren't as many levels so your your base grade clinician or um, a senior and then you're a team leader so um, there's I suppose it's a little bit more challenging to work your way up the okay, levels yeah. and your roles shift quite dramatically from one level to another whereas I think um, with the banding system it's a bit more gradual yeah. um, and what it did allow me was then to um, have those opportunities to take on the more senior roles and also um, to specialise because here my caseload is very general um, and uh, it's very varied yeah. uh, which I do enjoy I do like the variety I must admit but at the same time I think like my interest, one of my interests was the severe speech and yeah. the dyspraxic kiddies. And, and so being able to have that opportunity to attend training and to work with um, those clientele and then also be able to support the other clinicians that I was working with yeah. um, just to bounce ideas off. Um, no doubt, I, yeah, no way a guru in that area, but um, but I think it was nice to be able to share all that information. And, um, yeah, that's something you can definitely do in the UK is either have an interest in special needs or have an interest in hearing impairment or, um, yeah, school-based, like school-age services and so on. And, yeah, there is a lot more scope over there in terms of being able to, um, yeah, try different specialties and, and follow that interest. 
Yeah, brilliant. Okay, great. And what about what we what we might be able to benefit from <laughs> some tips? <laughs> A new database system. <laughs> yeah. What what oh, are the features of yours that make it so much better? Oh, it just doesn't freeze. Okay. Okay, fine. <laughs> no um no that wasn't the only thing um I guess the thing I was thinking was um here unfortunately we do have very long waiting lists to access our service so um at the moment we're looking between seven to 12 months from referral to be to assessment um which is quite dramatic and um, obviously that's quite significant to a young person Um, so it's not ideal but I I mean ideally it would be nice to find that balance between um, maintaining the waiting times to a short period but also being able to ensure that you get that quality individualized service for the clients that are are on your caseload yeah and I think sometimes there was so much pressure over there to make sure that you were picking the children up off that waiting list so quickly that it puts so much pressure on the staff and it puts so much pressure on um, looking at groups and um, other management strategies that may not be what you I guess personally or typically would choose to provide each client and I think um, sometimes you just need to provide that individualised service and and provide it based on their need and I think there is that concern that with those just ballooning caseloads that um, there's so much pressure on the staff so I I do feel that here we are protected a little bit more so Um, in terms of we have our caseload and we have a target for how many um, occasions of service you're expected to provide in a given week Um, and and an idea of roughly how many um, clients should be on your current caseload. But then they also do look at, okay, well, have you got a lot of children who are the highest service levels? Um, Therefore, you're providing so much therapy to those children that um, you're not able to have a really large caseload or do you have a nice spread across the service levels so that, yes, there are some children who only require the regular reviews or or something like that. So I do think um, there is, yeah, you almost want to find the happy medium yeah. because um, I think waiting lists and waiting times are always going to be very important and it's the data that seems to drive everyone um, but at the same time, I think for the for the people on the ground, um, it's it's nice to be able to have that balance and and to know that yes, these you're taking these children off the waiting lists and they're not waiting for extremely long times, but also that once they come onto your caseload, that you're going to give them the best thorough service that you can. So, yeah, yeah. I think. Hopefully, at some stage, I know when I was in the UK, there was so much pressure to assess a child within a certain time period. And and unfortunately, that just made life quite stressful. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So you feel like you're able to provide more quality service. Um, It sounds like that some children are getting a lot more therapy. But the flip side of that is that some people are waiting 
up to a year is that right yeah. yeah 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 so we just need to find a balance don't we between yeah cranking through the waiting list and offering some kind of quality yeah definitely I mean we still do make use of groups and and those sorts of things so that we can be trying to reduce that waiting list but um yeah I think that sometimes some children don't suit a group and um they might not suit another service provision and they need that individualized um time with their clinician and I think sometimes the families and the parents really need that time with their managing clinician so that they can really build up that rapport so um, yeah, I would like it eventually. I think um, the pressure on the staff, um, I must admit, I'm probably a little bit more relaxed here yeah. than I was in, um, yeah. in the UK. But yeah. um, at the same time, yeah, obviously still trying to give therapy provision to a lot of children. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, definitely some food for thought there. Thank you so much for your time, Fiona. That was brilliant. Oh, it was lovely to chat again. <laughs> Find out more about the podcast series at therapyideas.org or subscribe via iTunes by searching for Therapy Ideas. For CPD opportunities in London, check out the Therapy Ideas website.